Hey, Rachel, what happened to Dakin? Wolverine's son? Wolverine drowned him back in Uncanny X-Force. It was really sad. And he was a clone, right? No, no, he's just Wolverine's son. But Wolverine does have a clone. Miles, it's Marvel. Everyone has a clone. Anyway, Wolverine's clone isn't Dakin, it's X-23. But X-23 is a girl. Yeah. Wolverine's definitely biologically male, right? Yeah. Okay, either someone at Marvel is really confused about what clone means, or I am. Oh, no, no, no. See, some of the DNA they were working from was damaged, so they just had to duplicate an X chromosome. I assume when you say they, you mean Weapon X. Of course. And they'd invested a lot of time in adamantium into making Wolverine what he was, so when he went rogue, they figured they might as well build a new one from scratch. And X-23, she first showed up in that comic NYX, right? Well, in the comics, she'd actually made her debut about a year before that in the high school alternate universe cartoon X-Men Evolution. Okay. Which basically makes her the Harley Quinn of the Marvel Universe. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 25th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. 25th? We've seriously done 25 episodes? That's a quarter of a century in podcast years. I feel like we should have some kind of a special cover for this one. If only we had covers. We do have covers now, actually. Thanks to our very cool Patreon supporters, we have new art every week from David Wynn. He's been doing terrific new art. If you look at the podcast on our site, you can see that. Each one of those is available for a week as a a limited print. It's super cool. That's actually a really good segue to an awesome announcement, which is that we have a new t-shirt design that we're super freaking psyched about. Way back in episode 5, 20 episodes ago, we made a really off-the-cuff joke about what would be on my gravestone. We thought it was really funny, and you thought it was really funny, and there is literally no phrase that has been more requested for a t-shirt, so it is our great pleasure to be finally debuting the Probably a Summers Brother t-shirt. Yes, buy one, buy ten. Maybe we can do some sort of flash mob of everyone who's probably a Summers Brother at some point. There are so many. Oh my god, wouldn't it be funny if cosplayers started wearing them? Oh man, like somebody's dressed up as, you know, Lobo or Darkseid or something with a Probably a Summers Brother t-shirt. This goes with my goal of convincing more people to cosplay Adam X the Extreme. There's a flash mob I want. It would be very sharp and everyone would be falling over on their skateboards. I love this plan. Speaking of sharp things that have often been 90s... Wow, that was a segue. Hey, I do what I can. Adam X on a segue. Oh, that would be even more badass. That should have been a Patreon tier. (laughs) So last week we talked about Uncanny X-Men 168 to 175, but we actually glossed over a couple of issues for the most part, and those were set in Japan. They were about Wolverine and Yukio and Wolverine's wedding. And this week we're going to go back to those and put them in their larger context, following out of the seminal, amazing Chris Claremont, Frank Miller Wolverine miniseries. And man... I am so excited about talking about this. I love this miniseries so much. Okay, wait, 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 wait a minute. The only character you hate more than Professor X is Wolverine. What's going on here, Rachel? I don't hate Wolverine. I mean, you talk about how you can't stand him. No, no. See, here's the thing. I love Wolverine. Wolverine is one of my favorite characters. I hate the bullshit, deluded, overused, pointless marketing thing that Wolverine has become. Largely, in fact, because he's one of my favorite characters. This is the Wolverine that, for me, defines Wolverine and what he should be and sets the bar high enough and solid enough that I am perennially annoyed at other series' failure to hit it. I kind of feel the same way. Like, Wolverine's obviously a very overexposed character. I think that really picked up in the 90s and never really got any better. I mean, you know, he's going to die in current continuity, and they've already announced two series that take place about his death. I mean, come on, Marvel. But yeah, back here, I mean, he was in X-Men, and every once in a great while, he'd be in a miniseries as well. I think he gets an ongoing a few years from where we're covering as well, but it's, it's not nearly as bad as it got. And this miniseries 
this is my Wolverine. This is what Wolverine should be. And this is what a Wolverine comic should be, at least to me. Okay, well, let's talk about how this series got started. Because at the time, there really wasn't much going on as far as X-Men related miniseries, right? Right. This series was conceived in July of 1981. Frank Miller and Chris Claremont were driving back to L.A. after San Diego Comic-Con, and they got stuck in traffic and basically talked through the creation of what would be a Wolverine miniseries. There's a great quote from Claremont. This is from his intro to the first collected edition. Frank and I began by discussing the central character. Who was Wolverine? What made him tick? The only story parameter we acknowledged at the time was that we wanted to utterly, ruthlessly, and seemingly irrevocably destroy him, and then maybe make him better. But even that was open to change, depending on how our discussions of his character went. And through this discussion, a mutual image of Wolverine emerged, one we both liked, one we could both relate to and deal with. This is when Marvel is starting to transition to a very, very artist-centric model. Now, that's interesting because I really don't think of that as happening until around the Jim Lee Rob Liefeld era when it got really severe. This is sort of the age of the auteur artist. And I've been reading Sean Howe's Marvel The Untold Story, which goes into this in a lot of detail and which I heartily, heartily recommend to anyone who's interested in a really sort of inside baseball look at the development of a lot of the comics that we've been and will continue to be talking about. At this point, Frank Miller, he was about 14 issues into his seminal run of Daredevil. In fact, when he had this conversation with Claremont, he'd just finished penciling Daredevil 181, where Elektra dies. Um, Oh, yeah, that's a really famous art. And right after this series, he would basically jump ship to DC and do the book that would really cement his reputation, which was Ronin. And he was a rising superstar, specifically of superhero comics at this point. This and Daredevil are really the first books where you see him concretely starting to establish the noir tone and style for which he later became much, much better known. Frank Miller is one of those creators who's so much of an institution that I think it's very, very easy to forget how much his work and influence really changed comics. Well, and I think here we also have something that's sort of unique in that usually you're used to seeing a Frank Miller book and it's written and drawn by him. With this, he's just doing the art. And with Claremont on writing and Miller on art, it is a beautiful, beautiful alchemy. We've talked some about Marvel style and about the fact that a lot of the plotting was a direct collaboration between writers and artists. And I think this series is a great example of that style at its absolute best, because you've got two creators with very, very distinct and very, very strong voices. You could really easily have either clashed or crossed like ships in the night. And instead, you get this unbelievably good creative fusion in a series that I think neither of them could have developed or created individually. Oh, yeah. If you look at it as compared to Uncanny X-Men, for instance, and we'll we'll get to more of this later, but the tone is completely different. And I think that's in a way that works in this book's favor very strongly. I mentioned the Claremont intro, and I actually want to go back to that in relation to my Wolverine feelings, because Claremont hits on something that I think is vital both to what does and doesn't work in ongoing superhero comics and specifically to the antipathy that I've developed toward Wolverine as he appears currently and and did for a very long time. Claremont had talked a lot about dynamic characters and allowing for change, and this just really sort of nails his philosophy on that. It seems to me that a character cannot remain static, even in an ongoing open-ended publishing format like comics. If you freeze a character into a certain set of parameters, usually for convenience, of other writers, of readers, of merchandisers, whatever, then before long that character runs the risk of becoming sterile. Writers, and ultimately readers, may stop thinking of the character as a vital, real three-dimensional being and instead come to perceive him or her as a agglomeration of stock elements. Plug him in, wind him up, turn him, her, them loose, and put him through their stock paces. 
Nothing changes. Nothing grows. Stories may still be technically exciting, but they've lost all heart. There's no passion, nothing to excite the readers and hold them interested. And you see this so much later on, like the whole rubber band continuity thing. And part of that is that characters keep coming back from the dead all the time, and so that doesn't really uh, have any meaning. But I don't don't think it's just that. It's that all the core characteristics of characters, they just stay the same. You know, Wolverine's always going to embody these traits. Batman, of course, is always going to embody these traits. Well, and that's the crux of my frustration with Wolverine right there. His use as a plug-and-play protagonist. Yeah, it's like if you need the the angry claw man, then there he is for you. In addition to the podcast, we do a series of video reviews of current X books, which you can find at RachelandMiles.com or on YouTube. And this week, one of the ones that came up was Savage Wolverine number 23, and I just excoriated it. It's like a not-even-quite-Wolverine story built out of genre trappings of other Wolverine stories. And this a definitive series, the Miller Claremont one, because it's what it is for a reason. It takes Wolverine on a really defined arc. The genre trappings and the setup, they all serve a purpose. They're not just there because they're things that are associated with Wolverine. I mean, this is the series that associated those things with Wolverine. There's a reason this is a Wolverine story, and there's a reason that everything else that's in it is there. Well, let's take a look at the character of Wolverine himself, because he definitely didn't start off the way he starts the series then, right? Right. So Wolverine started out in The Incredible Hulk 181. He was a minor, minor antagonist who fought the Hulk for no apparent reason. So Len Wein, who'd created Wolverine, brought him back for Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975. And initially, Wolverine was not a very well-defined character. I mean, at that point, none of them were well-defined, as we come to think of well-defined in the later Claremont era. But basically, he was defined by having big metal claws and being a dick to pretty much everybody. Not quite as much as Thunderbird or Sunfire, but still being a dick. And in X-Men, he really comes into his own and establishes a clear voice during the Brood Saga, and something I didn't realize until I went back and checked the dates when I was working on the outline for this episode, is that those Brood Saga issues were actually coming out concurrent to this Wolverine miniseries that we're going to be talking about in 1982 and 3. Yeah, and you wouldn't expect that to be the case, because in the previous episode, we talk about a series of issues where Wolverine is gone, presumably doing the events of this miniseries, and in fact, the miniseries had already come out, so that was kind of weird. Like, I don't know if that editorial department just didn't really worry about things like that at that point, or what? So, God, he's been an X-Men at this point for, what, like eight years? So what does Wolverine the series change or introduce? We have the dueling natures of man versus beast. We've definitely seen that before, especially as the idea of the berserker rage has really uh, come more into the fore. We also have honor versus the appearance of honor, because Wolverine comes off like a savage, but he's got this sort of more noble soul. And that's going to be a really, really big one in this series in particular. And we also have the theme of Logan as a perennial outsider of whatever group he's in. And I think it's worth noting, one of the questions that's come up a lot with Wolverine is why he's on the X-Men, why that's the team that he's stuck with. He doesn't really seem like a guy for whom mutant solidarity is a big thing. And all of those themes that Miles just mentioned are actually also really driving themes in X-Men. They're just much more concentrated with Wolverine specifically, which I think is a lot of what connects him to the team. He's really a good microcosm of a lot of those different struggles. Also, uh, if you've seen the movie The Wolverine, as opposed to X-Men Origins Wolverine, which is a different matter altogether, then you've kind of seen a lot of what happens in this series. It's Wolverine in Japan, and there's a lot of ninjas. Well, kind of. You know, I'm going to argue that that has about as much in common with this series as The Last Stand has with the Dark Phoenix Saga. It's got a lot of the same elements but it's so differently removed from the style, the tone, and the voice, and the context of the original, and some of the things are so changed that also the comic is just so much better. Well, that being said, I think it's also important to note that The Wolverine is an enjoyable, watchable film, and The Last Stand is like filth incarnate designed to rot your soul. I will still stand up for its fight scenes. Okay, you can just watch the fight scenes, and then you have like a a 12-minute movie. Okay, And Multiple Men. 16-minute movie. 
anyway, point being, if you've seen the movie, yeah, you should still read this comic because like Rachel just said, it's it's different enough that it's uh, worth getting the other part of the story. And it's also just really, really good. Again, it's just, it's so much better. So let's actually talk about the comic. This is what we've been building up to. And this, oh, I'm so excited to get our teeth into this. Yeah, this is, this is really good stuff. So as you mentioned, the series is all about notions of honor and specifically Wolverine's evolution with his idea of honor and how it relates to really his identity. And that's played out alongside three major foils. Shingen Yashida, who's a crime lord. Yukio, who's a sort of self-styled ronin. And Mariko Yashida, who's Shingen's daughter, with whom Wolverine has had a budding romance. Mariko and Wolverine first met when the X-Men were on their kind of year-long odyssey to get back from Magneto's volcano base. They met her when they met Sunfire. Now, before we get any further, I want to talk a little bit about names, because it occurs to me that that arc also had Sunfire, Hushiro Yoshida. So here we have the Yoshida and Yashida families, just to keep things confusing. We also, in this comic, are going to get introduced to a character named Yukio, who is not the same character as Yuriko, who will later show up uh, as Lady Deathstrike. This is like if you made the major supporting cast of She-Hulk all characters with names like Gwen and Jan. I mean, I feel like you could do some sort of a miniseries with this, but probably it would I just be a I actually really want that now, like She-Hulk, Wasp, and Gwen Stacy. <laughs> I like this plan. And the whole thing is just a joke of, of people getting them mixed up because of their names. Where this arc opens is actually not in Japan. Um, we see Wolverine going through the woods, clearly hunting someone, and it's quickly revealed that he's hunting a grizzly that's killed some people. And the way he talks about this grizzly, like, it sounds like he's hunting a person at first. The grizzly, it turns out, has been driven mad by illegal poison from an arrow from an unscrupulous hunter who Wolverine then also hunts down. It really underlines the second major theme of this series, which is the duality of man and animal and how that's going to play out with Wolverine and with other characters. That's actually a scene I, I thought the Wolverine movie got right. After he beats the hell out of these jerk hunters, he decides, you know, Mariko hasn't been getting back to me. I'm getting all these letters suddenly returned unopened. I should probably see what's going on here because I love her and she's pretty rad. So I'm going to go to Japan. As soon as he gets there, he gets collared by Asano Kimura, who is an old associate of Wolverine from his secret agent days. They're totally bros. And, you know, this is something we see in X-Men a lot. It's like, oh, yes, this is my close friend that I spent many years uh, being super buds with and have never mentioned before. But now he's relevant to the story, so I totally will. We saw this in the New Mutants graphic novel with Black Eagle, Danny Moonstar's father. The thing is, with most characters that play stupid, with Wolverine, I absolutely buy it because A... He's fairly old. He's been running around and secret agenting around for a long time. And B, he's really tight-lipped. Like, he doesn't talk about his friends. He doesn't talk about the rest of his life. And he's also got, you know, massive amounts of his memory wiped out. So I buy this here in a way that I wouldn't elsewhere. So uh, Asano Kimura tells Wolverine a little bit about what's going on. And one of the things he tells them is, yeah, the reason Mariko's not returning your calls, she's married. And Wolverine's like, wait, dude, what? And so Asano explains that Shingen, her father... He was presumed dead, he just came back, and he owed a lot of people favors, and so one of the ways he paid off one of those favors was to marry his daughter to some dude. Asano warns Logan that Shingen and... Noburu, I believe. Noburu are up to their eyebrows in organized crime and corruption, and Logan should just get out while he can, and Logan says, hell no, and he heads over to the Yashida family compound. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if you want Wolverine to do a thing, just tell him it's a bad idea to do it. He's totally yeah, he's there. kind of like a five-year-old there. So, a really angry, violent five-year-old. So Wolverine actually does track down Mariko, and she's like, hey, you shouldn't have come here. This is what I have to do. And she turns around, and she's super beaten up and bruised. 
and it's pretty clear immediately what's been going on. Her husband's been beating her. And this actually really surprised me when I read it because I'm used to the feel of late 70s, early 80s X-Men based on what we've been focusing on so much. And that can get a little dark in terms of plot stuff, but it's rare that you'll have like spousal abuse directly referenced on panel like this. There's something that you see in general with this and that this series very much is part of is creators starting to really push the bounds of the comics code and publishers starting to support them and pushing back against that. Yeah, and that's really to the credit of this series. I mean, it's got a sort of, I hesitate to use the word more mature to imply more violent, but it certainly has a more graphic, uncompromised vision of the darker parts of the world. You know, I think mature is an interesting word because the type of story that's a Wolverine story and the type of story that's an X-Men story are very different. The X-Men are very much superheroes. Wolverine is older, He's a character who I think in a lot of ways is a lot darker. I've talked about characters who do and don't make sense to write dark, gritty stories about. And Wolverine is a fundamentally dark and gritty character. And this is him going back to those roots. By the way, characters you should never make dark and gritty? Speedball. What were they thinking putting him in that pennant suit? That was just dumb. Dumb, dumb, dumb. So going back to the series, she won't leave and Wolverine decides that the thing for him to do is to confront her father, who she's saying, you know, she's she's tied by honor to do what her father says because it's her family. And so he goes and confronts Shingen and Shingen's like, yeah, you are so far out of your depth, kid. Well, and specifically, you are not worthy to even be offering this challenge. If you want to fight whatever, here are some boken, these these wooden practice katana. And Wolverine's like, what, we're not going to use real swords? And uh, Shingen's like, dude, you haven't earned real swords. So they do fight, and it's actually a really, really good fight scene. Frank Miller excels at scenes like this. So wooden swords don't sound like a really big deal, but... The thing about Boken is you can kill someone with one. They're very strong. They've got edges. They can totally be a deadly weapon. And that's actually kind of what's going on here, because what looks like it's this almost friendly duel, Shingen clearly knows enough about pressure points and stuff, and I actually have no idea if there's any real science to this, but what Wolverine's saying is that Shingen is striking him in ways that will definitely kill him, and he's going to make it look like it was an accident, to basically make it look like he's still being honorable in front of his daughter. Wolverine realizes this and pops his claws. And so what everyone else sees is Shingen adhering to the structure of the duel and Wolverine just ruthlessly attacking him. And Shingen still kicks his ass, but he comes out looking like the good guy. And Wolverine comes out looking like not even a villain so much as just an animal, as someone who is completely out of control and has no honor. And again, that goes back to that theme we talked about originally, the reality versus the appearance and pretext of honor. And so Mariko is like, oh man, yeah, that that didn't look good. And uh, Shingen asks if he is worthy and she basically says, no, no, he's not. And they throw Wolverine out. And then he's immediately jumped by a bunch of assassins. As often happens. But he is rescued by a mysterious and awesome lady. Okay, Rachel, I'm just going to leave this one to you because while I like Yukio, I think your enthusiasm kind of wins on this one. Let me tell you about how much I like Yukio. Oh man, Yukio is so great. Yukio is my number one X-Men supporting character crush. (laughs) And that's saying a lot. There are a lot of good options there. There are. Oh god, I love her so much. She's so rad. She is rad as hell. Yukio is sort of a self-styled Ronin. The first issue, playing on those themes and honor and control, sort of centers around Shingen and that fight. Issue two, going into issue three, are all about Yukio. 
Yukio basically is a fucking badass. She and Wolverine are an amazing matched set as fighters, and there are some great scenes of the two of them basically taking out zillions of ninja. I'd like to bring up the inverse All law the ninja. of ninjas here. So the more ninjas are in a given location, the crappier they are. If you have like one ninja coming after you, you're going to die and not even know what happened. If you have 80, you can punch each one of them in the vague vicinity of the shoulder and they'll just explode. This is something that's actually explored to great effect and at great length and very explicitly in the adventures of Dr. McNinja. Absolutely true. You should totally read that. You should. It's terrific. But these ninja are totally fodder. And throughout this series, really, if you work for the hand in the early 80s, you exist to make some combination of Daredevil, Electro, Wolverine, and Yukio look badass. And chances are Frank Miller is going to draw you doing so. So at least you have that going for you. Right. You do do at least get drawn by early 80s Frank Miller, which is an honorable way to die, as ways to die go. Yukio rescues Wolverine twice in a row, and it's very obvious very quickly that she's got a thing for him. She sees him as someone who's very much like her, who's this masterless warrior who's incredibly skilled, but also kind of on the edge and kind of out of control. And that's really Yukio. Like, she, if I had to come up with one word for her at this point, it would be wild. She just does whatever she feels like. She's a total thrill seeker. She doesn't really care too much about the consequences of her actions. Yeah, I mean, her epithet throughout this and throughout X-Men is, you know, wild one. But here's the thing. Yukio isn't actually masterless. She's working for Shingen. And she's got two missions. The first of them is to assassinate Shingen's rival, Katsuyori, which she figures she'll use Logan to help her do. And the second is to take out Logan. So Katsuyori, so we mentioned Shingen's a crime lord. Katsuyori is like the head of a, another... Uh, a rival family. Yeah, a rival family. Um, and Shingen's trying to consolidate control of the underworld and then use that to basically become puppet emperor. So he's basically going to be like Bela Lugosi and pulls these strings! I can't do a Hungarian accent, but that's Hopefully okay. Hopefully without the tragic morphine addiction and reliance on Edward D. Wood Jr., Uh, One can only hope. So Yukio tells Logan that, hey, so your girlfriend and her husband are going to go visit this Katsuyori crime lord dude, and I have and word on the street is that he's going to try to kill them. So we should should stop them. He's the one who sent those assassins after me, which isn't true. Shingen did that. She convinces Logan to do that. They break into the stronghold. And this is the first point where you really see a contrast between Logan and Yukio because Logan doesn't kill the guards. Now, an interesting thing about this is that even just a few years before, Wolverine absolutely would have killed those guards. We see him doing that when the X-Men are in the Savage Land uh, during that year-long odyssey. And the other X-Men are a little bit horrified by Wolverine just stabbing and murdering the guards that are in their way. So the character, even in this short time, has already changed a lot. One could probably argue through his exposure to the X-Men men specifically storm that's going to get interesting shortly but for now they break into this compound and they find katsuyori and his wife and also mariko and her husband in a private theater watching a kabuki performance this performance specifically is 47 ronin which i'm mainly familiar with because the company i work for did an adaptation recently there was also a movie which was supernatural and weird and i suspect not very uh, representative but the story of 47 ronin actually dovetails really nicely with the symbolism that this comic here explores it's not explicit it just mentions a couple of the basic principles, but the real short version, essentially, it's a Japanese court drama. Um, not court like gavels and wigs, but court like people dressed up all fancy and being nobles and having politics. Well, it's stuff got going some on. of both, actually. Yeah, so there's this noble lord from the countryside who gets called into the emperor's palace. He's very noble and upright and honorable, and a lot of the people who are already there and very compromised because of courtly intrigue are offended by this. They resent it. And so they manipulate him into getting so angered at their not being honorable people that he draws a sword in front of the emperor, and that's punishable by death, so he gets killed. Most of the story is the leader of his samurai, as his holdings are dissolved, says, hey, all right, guys, other samurai, we're going to be 
meet up in a little while, and we are going to go on a suicide mission to avenge the death of our lord. And in the meantime, if we have to compromise our honor to like get to the point where we can prepare for this, then whatever, who cares? So 47 Ronin, it sounds like. I'm, I'm not as familiar with that story, but what I'm getting from your description is that it's very much about the contrast between honor as following a formal set of rules and honor as adhering to the deeper principles that inform them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, and so you have the people in the court who are being super corrupt with the letter of the law, and then these masterless samurai who are breaking a lot of rules but doing it for the right reasons, honor-wise, and so they do end up avenging their master's death and killing themselves. Now, as it happens, the guys who are playing this out on the stage are not actually actors. They are actors, but they're actors who are also held assassins and they make a play to kill America specifically yeah and her husband theoretically yeah katsuyori he's a rival of course he's going to take this opportunity to take people out and in fact it's implied that shingen set this up deliberately as another part of his political moves yeah so, shingen is an obnoxious chess master like he's the guy who sends actual assassins after his people to make their rescues and fights look more realistic without telling them. He's really good at what he does, though. He's a very effective villain. I gotta give him that. But he's not quite the best at what he does. What he does, however, is not very nice. True. Wolverine, of course, jumps into action, saves Mariko, pops his claws, goes berserk in the battle, and Mariko is once again horrified. I want to talk about the narration in this. This is a series that has some dialogue, but a lot of the series is narration and illustration without dialogue. It's very, very much sort of a noir mystery. It's impossible to read this series and not hear it in whatever you think of as Wolverine's voice. For me, that's Stephen Bloom from the animated series. It's just so distinct. And one of my favorite lines comes in this scene when he completely loses it. I lost control. I feel sick. I feel great. And he sees as he's looking up that Mariko is just staring at him in horror. And at that point, Yukio looks at Mariko, looks at Wolverine, just smiles and thinks to herself, gotcha. And she kills Katsuyori. She blows up his car as he's escaping, and she and Wolverine run off. And Wolverine knows at this point, having seen her, that he has lost Mariko for real. Yeah, from here, Wolverine and Yukio basically go on a, like, what, days long, weeks long? I don't yeah, even Wolverine know. 3 starts with Wolverine and Yukio on an epic bender. It starts with Wolverine getting in a bar fight with this disgraced sumo. He throws the dude out a window, and then... Asano shows up to make sort of one last appeal to Wolverine to get out of there. And Wolverine says no, and Yukio's like, all right, let's go do my favorite thing, which turns out to be playing chicken with a bullet train, because Yukio is a little bit crazy. Uh, yeah, and even Wolverine's like, whoa, seriously, lady, is this what's happening? She's a daredevil. She is pure it, or she tries to be, although her relationship with Shingen kind of limits that. She's the character who really pulls Wolverine in this and then Storm out of their state habits. And that raises a question that's come up in a couple conversations about this series. Is, is Yukio a manic pixie dream girl? A very violent one. But... Manic pixie nightmare girl. <laughs> um, well, I, I, that's a really good question. Manic pixie dream girls, I think that can be potentially a kind of problematic concept. So I, I guess to describe... Do you mean describe... like the characters or do you mean the term... Well, potentially both, but specifically the idea of characterizing characters as Manic Pixie Dream Girls, that can really minimize their agency in stories. It can minimize them as characters. And, you know, I think, for instance, with Yukio, there's a lot going on with this character. She, she has a very complex collection of traits and motivations as much as any other character in the book. And I think to use that label could potentially just view her as a vehicle in Wolverine's journey rather than the realized character that she is. What's your take? 
I think you make a really, really good point about it being just a fundamentally deeply flawed concept. But even if you decide to read it as at face value, I have trouble seeing Yukio fall into that because she is such a well-realized, interesting, and legitimately really flawed character in her own right. She's not just a good trip. She's a character who has her own arc in this story very much. And I think part of her strength really as a character is that she doesn't fit neatly in categories. There are a lot of things you can stick her into if you feel like you need to. You know, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, uh, Femme Fatale but she just isn't contained neatly by any of those labels, which is something that I very much appreciate. So Yukio is still supposed to kill Logan. That's part of her mission. She's already succeeded in killing Katsuyori, and that's awesome, I guess. And Wolverine at this point is just passed out drunk. The Hand shows up, which is to say a bunch of ninjas, and is like, all right, so Shingen says, you screwed up by not killing Wolverine yet, but if you do it right now in front of us, then you can be redeemed in Shingen's eyes. And she says, how about no and kills them all? Wolverine wakes up near the end of the battle as she's finishing killing off all of these ninja who have come to kill him, protecting him and refusing to kill them. He's still half asleep, he's still super drunk, looks at her, and calls her Mariko. So yeah, she kicks him in the face and gets out of there. Things just go very badly at this point. So a fundamental conceit of noir is the protagonist getting caught in machinery that's larger than them. And this is really where that starts for Wolverine. Because Asano, Wolverine's old friend who's been trying to get him to get out of there, who's sort of fundamentally a good guy, goes back looking for them. Yukio at this point knows that the Hand and all of Shingen's folks are trying to kill her. She sees someone starting to come in with a drawn gun, and she kills Asano. Logan finds Asano after that. I gave her my heart, and she killed my friend. And so he chases her throughout Tokyo in this phenomenally staged scene. We've got to get some of this on the as-mentioned on Yeah, on um, we're going to get a lot of this up there. The things that Frank Miller can do with silhouettes, with the sense of motion and desperation, this is not Frank Miller at his peak. This is Frank Miller still sort of growing into the definitive Frank Miller. And even at this point, no one else was doing what he was doing this well. He was unbelievable. And eventually the, the chase ends. Logan catches Yukio. They crash into a Zen garden. Oh, that's not a metaphor. And she actually says, all right, fine. This is how it has to end. Kill me and kill yourself. It'll be beautiful. She's all about the grand finish. This is a much more fatalistic Yukio than I think she's normally characterized as. I'm going to ascribe that to her being kind of tied to Shingen, having a master, really not being able to be a Ronin, not being able to quite be herself. And so trying to frame her current situation in terms that don't quite apply to it. But uh, Logan does not kill her and actually starts looking around at the Zen Garden that he's completely destroyed the Order in in this scuffle. He sees it as a metaphor for himself and realizes, you know, hey, this can be fixed. He, he starts thinking about whether he's an animal or a man. An animal knows what it is and accepts it. A man may know what he is, but he questions, he dreams, he strives, changes, grows. Yeah, this is kind of what I think of as Wolverine's Iron Giant moment. We are what we choose to be. And that leads us directly into Wolverine number four on the title of this issue is just honor. So this is a trope I really love, because you have your hero having gotten all screwed up, everything has gone wrong, and then he or she realizes, like, okay, I know what I need to do, now I'm going to do it. And so we see Wolverine just shredding Shingen's criminal empire. Oh, there's a great line, what is it? Shingen spent years building his organization. I spend hours ripping it apart. It's also got one of your favorite moments being his ninja gearing up montage. Oh, yeah, because you got to have the montage where people are like, you know, buckling their belts and putting on their boots and getting all their guns. All the guns. And yeah. in this case, he gets a bunch of ninja gear, which I don't think he actually uses very much of, but it's still freaking awesome. We've mentioned genre trappings a couple times, and this is a very, very classic noir story. Um, again, very much the fusion of, of Claremont and Miller's sensibilities and things that you'll see refined further later on in, into Sin City and the Dark Knight Returns. And something that struck me with this sequence, I kept on thinking about Hellboy. 
Huh. Now, Hellboy is really not a very noir character, but I think there are some similarities that strike me as kind of very much really similar driving motifs. They've both got very, very, very strong narrative voices, and they're both kind of built around character and genre dissonance. So in this, a lot of the appeal of his stories come from taking a character who's not a very direct or classic fit from the genres and worlds he's being stuck in and then seeing how he navigates that gap. And out of both of those come generally a theme of existentialism, sort of fighting fate and identity as something that you make rather than something you're born with. And they're both great, but that friction between character and genre is something that really sticks out to me in this series in particular. And yeah, I mean, this is definitely Wolverine deciding who to be in a world not of his own making. That's absolutely true. Now, meanwhile, Yukio has been caught by Shingen. And he asks, hey, what's the deal? And she says, well, I basically, I accidentally killed Logan's friend and to make up for it, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, yeah, okay, that actually sounds pretty reasonable. Let's do that. He's weird because he, he definitely does believe in honor. He just sort of cheats whenever it serves his purposes. Yeah, he's all about the letter rather than the spirit. Sort of going back to 47 Ronin in that regard, yeah. You know, everything goes to hell at this point. So Wolverine shows up, Noboru tries to leave with Mariko. He holds her hostage with a gun. Man, you know, other characters are more complex. This dude, he just sucks. Yeah, he doesn't really have anything exciting about him. He's just sort of this generic-looking guy in a suit with glasses and black hair. The only things we really know about him is that he doesn't talk very much and he beats his wife. Yeah, if this dude were an ice cream flavor, he would be pralines and dick. And so Yukio kills him, which I feel really good about. And she asks Wolverine if they can be bros again. Nope, nope, they cannot. Without another word, she's gone. I can't forgive her for Asano, and I can never repay her for Mariko. So I let her go. God, I love the narration in this so much. So then finally we get to the climactic fight. This is the one the series has been building up back to since the first time it happened, and that's Logan versus Shingen. Yeah, so last time they fought with wooden practice swords, and Shingen humiliated Logan. This time it's just the two of them, nobody watching. Shingen has a metal sword, Logan pops his claws. Now, I think that's significant, because in the first fight, the reason that they used wooden swords was that Shingen said that Wolverine wasn't worthy of a real sword. This inverts that symbolism incredibly neatly. Because we already know that Shingen is not an honorable guy in ways that matter. And I think this fight, Shingen with the sword and Wolverine with his claws, are all about the external trappings of honor versus honor as an intrinsic characteristic. You know, Shingen has the sword. He's got the nominal worthiness. But Wolverine's power and Wolverine's honor are something that he carries with him. And sheathes on the back of his arms. So, yeah, they fight and this fight scene's freaking great. It does visually parallel the previous one, but it's just, it's beautiful. There are just these four mostly narrationless pages of them going back and forth and back and forth. It's engrossing. I, I often find myself sort of glossing over the art in comics. I'm not a very visual person as compared to some people, but with this, I just spent so long looking at them. And we've talked a lot about the narration and the strong narrative voice in this. And one of the most effective things about that is the impact it has when it's pulled away. Right. I mean, Claremont's famous for being a very, very wordy writer, and rightly so. But with this, he knows when to let the art do the speaking for him, and it's, it's very effective. And again, this is, this is very much writer and artist as mutual authors. In this last issue, that alchemy hits its climax. Yeah, and speaking of that climax, so Wolverine kills Shingen, stabs him through. And then Mariko comes up and Wolverine knows, hey, Honor's going to demand that she kill Logan to avenge her father. And so he just stands there. And instead, she gives the Honor Sword to Wolverine, saying that Shingen didn't deserve what it represented, that Wolverine is a truly honorable man and Shingen wasn't. Therefore, the right thing for her to do is to let him have this blade that personifies honor itself. I mean, you could say it's a little on the nose that the symbolism is a little overt, but it really, really works. The book totally sells it. It's not a subtle book, but it doesn't try to be, and it doesn't need to be. And I want to take a minute to talk about Mariko here. The way we've seen her used previously in X-Men and also in this series 
she kind of looks like a damsel in distress. We've seen a lot of Shingen in this. We've seen a lot of Yukio in this. But Mariko's mostly been in the background. And she is not those things. This is the issue. And this is the scene that really establishes her as Wolverine's equal counterpart. She's not a physical command. But in her way, her notion of honor and her dedication to it are every bit as complex and dynamic as Wolverine's. And in her own field, on her own venue, she is every bit as competent and ruthless. We also find out what Mariko's plan was, because she wasn't just, you know, waiting around the entire time to be rescued or have nothing happen. We found out in the last page, Mariko tells me later that had Shinken survived our duel, she would have slain him herself, and then, if successful, taken her own life through seppuku, ritual suicide. It was tolerable for Noboru to act like a swine, indeed almost expected, because he was a man without honor to begin with. But for Shingen to behave in such a manner was an unpardonable crime, the ultimate betrayal of the clan. And as heir to the domain, it was Miko's duty to mete out punishment. Fortunately, I beat her to it. And Mariko's arc from here, as she continues to appear in X-Men, is going to be her trying to reclaim her family. But for now, what this ends with is an invitation to Wolverine and Mariko's wedding. So yeah, they're going to get married and they're going to live happily ever after. If only. Yeah, but no, because X-Men. So let's go back to X-Men 172 and 173. This is coming on the heels of the Morlock story. The X-Men have gone to Japan for Wolverine's wedding. But Wolverine is, you know, in his formal Japanese wear and is kind of adorable, I gotta say. And what you see initially is them all kind of getting to know each other again, because Wolverine's been out of the picture for a while. And again, he's, he's gone through a major character arc in his own miniseries. And the X-Men have been kind of going through some changes of their own. And so they're all sort of readjusting to each other. And I think it's worth noting, too, that Wolverine here is very much out of his element. This is Mariko's playing field that he's in at this point. Uh, he's shredded Shingen's empire. And now it's up to her to build it back up as something different, which is really delicate, really dangerous work. And he's worried that, A, he's not really going to be able to help, and B, that she's going to end up getting corrupted by this world. I feel so flame and helpless. This kind of scrap's too subtle for me. I don't know how to handle it. And meanwhile, we meet our apparent bad guys for this arc, and those are Viper and the Silver Samurai. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm going to do a real quick uh, description. So Viper, she's really complicated. She was also known as Madame Hydra. She first appeared in Captain America back in the 60s. She ended up briefly marrying Wolverine at one point, was in the Hellfire Club for a little while, currently runs Madripoor, has had like 10,000 different schemes against any number of heroes. Yeah, Viper has fingers in every single evil pie ever forever. And the Silver Samurai is a guy named Kenuichio Harada. Uh, he's actually Shingen's illegitimate son. This was retconned at this point. Um, he's a mutant who can charge his katana with energy. That's which a is, very specific power. It's a very culturally specific power. And he's one of those characters who sort of goes back and forth between villain and hero. He first appeared in Daredevil. My favorite Silver Samurai fact is at one point he fought Spider-Man on the set of Saturday Night Live. These two delightful individuals show up and immediately poison everyone. Well, not quite everyone because... That's true. Storm doesn't drink the tea. And Wolverine and Rogue are too badass for your dinky bullshit poison. Now, this is actually the first time Wolverine's met Rogue as a member of the X-Men. The last time he saw her uh, was in conjunction with her doing terrible things to Carol Danvers, one of his best friends. And we're going to go back to that in a second. But meanwhile, Mariko gets called out to a meeting by the Silver Samurai, mediated by a guy named Nabatone, Yosuke, who is actually going to turn out to be Mastermind. It's obviously a hell of a super trap, but she knows and she goes anyway because of honor and stuff. The Mastermind thing, you may remember from our last episode that he's responsible for, like, every bad thing that happens to the X-Men in this period. Yeah, he's a dick. He's a total dick. He's the worst. So at this point, the story is going to split into two major threads. And the first thread is my favorite thread of all the threads because it is the Storm and Yukio thread. I kind of feel like the way this thread happens in your head and the way this thread happens on the page are not necessarily the same thing. Miles, there is literally nothing that you can tell me or show me in this comic book that will unconvince me that Storm and Yukio are totally doing it. 
they catch up with what's going on with Mariko and they decide they're going to turn the tables and then spend the next issue fighting their way back through Tokyo. The first time they meet, Storm rescues Yukio from falling off a building. And seriously, like, could this be any more like the classic romantic arc? It's a ninja meet cute. Anyway, we've talked about Yukio as a foil to Wolverine, and she also plays that role to Storm, but in a very different way. With Wolverine, Yukio is sort of appealing to something he's moving away from, you know, that out of controlness. And with Storm, it's something that she's moving to. Yeah, we've seen Storm kind of getting more and more violent, and I'm not going to, I don't know if angry is the right word, but a little bit less controlled than she has been before. And this is a slightly different Yukio that we see in the miniseries. She's not tied to a corrupt master. She's acting entirely independently here, so maybe sort of a more fundamental, pure version of the character and her sense of herself as a ronin and functioning as pure id. And I think there's actually just the fact that these two issues of Uncanny X-Men and the four-issue Wolverine miniseries are very different in tone from one another. That actually goes back to a line that I really liked when Kitty's asking, well, can't they just talk to Shingen in prison? Oh, wait. And Wolverine narrates, moments like this, I feel sorry for the kid. She cares for me, believes in me. But every so often, she gets reminded, hard, that we come from two different worlds, and that mine isn't very nice. And he could just as easily be talking about the way things work in Uncanny X-Men, fundamentally a series of adventure stories, and the way they work in the Wolverine miniseries, which is noir as hell. I do feel like there still is a strong narrative reason for the difference in the way Yukio's characterized, too, which is that a lot of the darkness and the, the weirdness and corruption of how she was in Wolverine was related to her working for Shingen and trying to balance those things. And when she's acting sort of according to her own desires and whim. You get a, a much more distilled version of the character. And what she offers Storm, you mentioned Storm sort of losing control and becoming angrier and darker. Yukio gives Storm a counterbalance to the idea that the loss of control is fundamentally bad or destructive because Yukio lives on the edge with a kind of elemental joy that we've seen in Storm before we've seen her embrace with regards to her own powers. The idea that you can have both of those things at once is something that Storm really sort of starts to figure out through contact with Yukio. Also, they are 100% totally doing it. So the other big thread that's going on right now, which is to say what the other non-poisoned conscious characters are doing... Are two characters who are definitely not totally doing it, because one of them is Rogue. Like I mentioned, Wolverine really, really dislikes Rogue at this point. I mean, she did basically eat the brain of his best friend. But she doesn't get poisoned because she has half of Carol Danvers' biology within her that she's permanently absorbed, so she's effectively immune. She's effectively half-alien and also just nigh-invulnerable. She's like, hey, I want to help, and Wolverine says, well, I don't like it, but I do need a hand, so okay. So she and Wolverine go beat people up in bars for a while, and it's really nice. Yes, one of those shaking down the bar kind of scenes. They totally bond over it, it's pretty rad. it, It is. Their dynamic is a really good one, and I think it's especially worth contrasting to their dynamic specifically in the movies and also in a couple of the cartoons, Wolverine and the X-Men and X-Men Evolution. In the cartoons and in the movies, Rogue is a much younger, less experienced character. Yeah, and Wolverine in those becomes kind of a surrogate parent and mentor figure. This is very much the relationship he has with Kitty Pryde and later Jubilee in the comics. But in the comics, Rogue is really a fully formed character at this point. She's a badass. She understands her powers. She knows who she is. Yeah, she has sort of this half-amused at all times, kind of rebellious personality. Her voice, it, I don't know if it was established when she first first appeared as a villain, but at this point, it already is. She's the same rogue that we will uh, come to love. Now, she and Wolverine are going around. They do eventually find Mariko, and also Viper, who attempts to shoot and kill Mariko and Wolverine. Like we said last episode, and I got to make my Judas Priest reference, Rogue takes the bullet for them and damn near dies. She's like, hey, Mariko was nice to me when I first got here when Wolverine And you guys wasn't. were all being dicks. And so I'm going to do what I can to save her. And Wolverine's pretty impressed, and as Rogue is laying there dying, because she's nigh-invulnerable, not invulnerable, he touches her to give her access to his healing factor, even though it might kill him because he's heavily wounded at the same time. 
And, you know, with all of this stuff out of the way, finally Wolverine and Mariko can get married. And there's a lot of sort of fun wedding lead up. I love the fact that Kitty just keeps on handing Lockheed off to people to babysit. I feel like it's sort of the X-Men girlfriend test. Right. The, so you- the what do you do when I ask you to dragon sit? And there's a really delightful, offbeat, funny scene about that. And Storm also shows up with her new look, sort of the punk Callisto edge thing with her, her awesome, awesome mohawk. I think Storm kind of has a tradition of questionable wedding attire. There's this here. Like, why would you wear that to a wedding, even if it's awesome? There's the really iffy dress she wears to Scott and Jean's wedding in 1994. Storm gives no fucks about your wedding. Storm is awesome and fierce in ways that transcend proper formal wear. So unfortunately, this should be a joyous moment, but there's everyone's least favorite douchebag mastermind in his bright pink frock coat. And he's been manipulating all of this as a complex ploy for revenge on the X-Men for thwarting him during the Hellfire arc, and basically he manipulates Mariko into leaving Wolverine at the altar. She's coming up there in her, her ceremonial wedding garb, and she just says, this wedding is off because you're not worthy. And that's the end of the story. It's a very abrupt down ending in a way that, I mean, I think it's effective, but goddamn, Chris Claremont. In the next issue, um, he goes back to her and tries to get her to change her mind, and she's like, nope. And he's like, okay, well, if I don't deserve you, I don't deserve this, and gives back the honor sword. So uh, there are two different trade paperbacks of the Wolverine series. There's the one that includes just the four issues, and there's also one that includes these two X-Men issues. And I wanted to ask, Rachel, what's your take on that? Do you think that the story works better with the follow-up of X-Men 172 and 3, or do you think it works better with just miniseries. I think it works way better as just the miniseries. They connect and they go together and they're both good, but the miniseries is very much its own entity. It has such a distinct voice and tone and such a distinct and self-contained shape that I think packaging it with those sequels kind of dilutes it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the 172 and 173 are an important element story-wise in the X-Men story, but they're really their own thing. And also, I think they kind of take away from what's a solid, stellar ending of the miniseries. Also, it's my understanding that we have the earlier one. We have the 1986 collection, and it's a little bit oversized, which is something that I very much, I mean, we've been talking about how great the art is. This sets it off to great effect, and it's my understanding that the other one is just normal trade paperback size. I think so, yeah. Which, so yeah, that's another point against it. So, let's jump into questions. So, Miles... Zafian on Tumblr asks, can you no prize explain how it's okay for Wolverine to be on the Black Ops X-Force assassination squad who smoke bad guys and become headmaster of a school a very short time later in Wolverine and the X-Men? Why are all the X-Men okay with this? So a bit of brief context, in the recent past in the Marvel Universe, Wolverine has been on a secret assassination X-team that Cyclops started called X-Force. We've had many teams called X-Force. This is just one of them. And he's also currently running the Jean Grey school as its headmaster. Even after X-Force officially disbands under Cyclops, I believe Wolverine starts it back up again. It does, yeah. So part of it is that most of the X-Men don't actually know about X-Force. And the ones that do confront him are super uncomfortable about it and don't like it. But I think, more importantly, this brings up a larger point, which is that to accept Wolverine as a person, you know, within the comics universe, is to accept the different sides of him and to know that the bad doesn't cancel the good. That said, if people are giving Cyclops shit for being a hypocrite, they should do the same with Wolverine. This, for me, goes with the character's different expectations for those two characters. Wolverine has always been a loose cannon. Wolverine is a guy who they know has a background as an assassin, who they're used to thinking of is morally gray. Cyclops is the guy who draws that line, who they think of as drawing that line, and who they hold, honestly, to a frankly ludicrous standard. And so for him to break from that requires much more of a paradigm shift in their their conception of him as a person than it really does for Wolverine, too. Okay, next, uh, Sam Wilson in the blog comments asks... 
Is Wolverine's mask specifically designed to fit over his majestic hair without squashing it, or did he just design the mask as a tribute to his hair? All right, first of all, I have decided that this question is in fact specifically from the Falcon. Sam Wilson? Yeah, the Falcon listens to our podcast. (laughs) So Falcon, here is my answer, and the mask actually significantly predates the hair. Wolverine made his first appearance in Hulk 181, And you won't actually see him without the mask until X-Men 98, which is more than a year later. In Hulk 181, uh, Wolverine's got a mask that's got much smaller ears, and it's actually even got whiskers. It's pretty silly. And that changes in uh, Giant Size X-Men number one. Legend has it that Dave Cockrum had originally drawn Wolverine's original mask, and then Gil Kane changed it on the cover. He made the ears a lot larger, he he whited out the eyes, and Cockrum liked the design so much that he then changed the interior pages to match. And that mask, that design stuck around um, until X-Men 98, where you see him unmasked for the first time. And actually, John Byrne's original design for Wolverine Unmasked didn't have that signature hair. But that original design is what eventually became Byrne's design for Sabretooth. I think the hair is just a really sort of clever bit of visual continuity. It makes Wolverine instantly recognizable in or out of costume, and I really like it. But have you noticed that as time goes on, both the mask, ears, and the hair get bigger and bigger and bigger? Weirdly, I think that's actually like a visual trend in comics, because you see that happen with like the Kelly Jones Batman. The ears just get longer and longer and longer and almost become antennae. But see, I know what's going on here, which is that uh, everyone wants to be Wolverine's bud because he's awesome, right? So uh, the hair and the the mask ears are actually competing with one another to try to get his attention. It's this sort of... uh, arms race at this escalation of, of excess. I'm totally right. Uh, yeah, so Rachel and Miles explain and sometimes make things up about the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the co-host of Welcome to That Whole Thing and Full of Sith, which you can check out online. We have a website. It's rachelandmiles.com and you can find our show there on Sundays. They also do on iTunes and Stitcher. Our website has companion posts, which you should definitely check out. Rachel puts together a bunch of panels and captions from the issues we talk about each week. And you can also discuss things on the comment boards and check out a bunch of fan art and all sorts of other stuff. If you're enjoying what you're hearing here, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher and support our Patreon, which is what funds cool stuff like the midweek video review as we do and that additional website content. We'll be back next week checking back in with our very favorite super teens, the New Mutants, on one of their first missions. They're going to fight and then team up with a motorcycle stunt team called Team America. I love comics. (laughs) 